shepherd, I believe. So we're in a, in a series called Consumer Christianity. It's, it's based on 1 Corinthians. And uh, we introduced a question two weeks ago that really introduces all of, all of chapters 8 through 10. And, uh, and the question that we were getting into about two weeks ago was this question that Paul um, was wrestling with with the Corinthians. And here's the question that they were trying to wrestle with. And it was this. Can Christians eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And his first response, and this sort of summarizes all of chapters 8 through 10, is if idol food is eaten in the context of idolatrous worship in a pagan temple, then the answer to that question is no. But the second response we see later in chapter 10 is if it is bought in the meat market without knowing where it comes from, then yes, you can partake. So let's say you're at a friend's house and they say, hey, here's some meat. And you're like, I'm not going to ask any questions about this hamburger. I'm just going to eat it. Um, that was okay for someone to do. Um, but if someone, the third response was this. If, it is eaten, if it's eaten in a private home, then yes, unless it will harm the conscience of anyone who is present, in which case, no. So you see, that's the lay of the land for all of chapters 8 through 10. And we're not going to cover all of chapter 10 because it's really long, and I only have 25 minutes. Uh, but the second half of the chapter is similar to chapter 8. So I'm going to skip over the second half of chapter 10. But the first half of chapter 10 is about eating food in context of idol worship in a pagan temple. So today we're really talking more about that, um, that first question, Paul, or his first response, which was if idol food's eaten in the context of idol worship, like inside a pagan temple, then Paul would say, no, it's definitely something you should not do. That would be sinful because it's part of a pagan idolatrous worship festival. That's what makes it wrong. So remember, some things are black and white, right and wrong. They're not all gray. Um, but this chapter addresses blatant idolatry. Now, whenever we think of idolatry, we think of maybe images like this. This is actually uh, a picture taken in this little store in Queens, New York, where we would often go for mission trips several years ago. We would stay in an area of Queens, and I was blown away. It was like we walk into this one. It's, a, it's mainly a Hindu and Buddhist type area of town. And I would walk into this one little store. And um, it's, you walk in there, and it's kind of like a drugstore. Like they just have, like, vitamins and minerals and stuff. And it's like a health food store kind of. And then they have, like, this idol section where you can, like, go buy an idol. And so just let that sink in for a moment. For certain cultures, I mean, it's, like, very casual to just go and say, yeah, um, can you go pick up some, uh, like, vitamin D and some, uh, I don't know, what's that, kombucha? Tea? Is that, what do they call it, kombucha? Yeah, pick up some of that stuff. And while you're out, could you grab an idol or two? And, uh, and so they have these in these stores, and it's just crazy to think. Like, you walk up and you're like, I want to, am, like, am I feeling like a big idol today or a little idol? Which one do I prefer today, you know? And uh, they're all priced and listed. And, and so for certain religions... It's very common just to say, hey, we're going to put an idol in our house, and uh, we're going to bow down, and we're going to pray to it. And so you and I think of idolatry only as this, but we all know it's not just this, right? We know that. Um, so we may not do this, like, in an explicit way, but we commit idolatry in all kinds of other ways. Uh, Stephen Um defines it like this. Idols are anything more fundamental than God for our happiness meaning, and identity. So what is, what is something that if it were taken away from you, you would think life may not be worth living? 
if this quality of myself or if this person in my life was taken from me, I'm not sure life would be worth living. What's the answer to that question for you? Many times idols are good things that we have turned into a God, and we find that person or whatever that thing might be or maybe a quality about ourselves, we think that um, we couldn't live without those things and they become idolatrous to us. So the most, I think the most dangerous type of idolatry is uh, when we turn good things into a godlike thing for us to worship because it's a good thing. It might be noble even with our intentions, but it can often become something that's idolatrous. So I think of someone, something like family. Family's good. God gives us families to live in and grow in and be, be nurtured by. But if family becomes an idol to us, that's a good thing, but it shouldn't take the place of God and worship in our lives. Now, um, we shouldn't think of idolatry as just this, like, higher version of sin. We tend to think of sin like there's these junior varsity sins, there's these varsity sins, and then, like, college sin would be like, that's idolatry, you know? That's how we tend to think of things. But when you look at, at, at sin in general, really you could say that all sin is idolatry. All sin is, is an attempt to take God off the throne and put something else on that throne. You might say it like this, idolatry is always the reason people ever do anything wrong. There is no other reason. Now, I know when you're talking to, like, little kids, it's hard to get into this stuff because it's, it's too deep for them, right? Like, your little brother, little sister, like, does something wrong. You don't necessarily try to convince them, like, hey, you didn't just tell a lie, but you committed idolatry. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? So we don't always say it like that, but essentially, this is what all sin is. All sin is idolatry. So we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is where Paul is recounting the idolatry of the past with the nation of Israel. He's going to show us some of the effects of idolatry in their nation and talk us through how it affects us today as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, where it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul goes on this little journey and goes back to uh, Israel's history. And he says, remember what happened to Israel? Like, y'all might know the story. Um, he says, let's recount all that Israel experienced. The whole nation was escorted by God out of Egypt they're guided by this cloud by day, and there's this big pillar of fire by night. They witnessed the Red Sea part so they can walk through on dry ground. They saw food fall out of heaven. Just imagine that for a moment. I know for us, like, it just, it just rained. Here, give me a second. It just rained, like, for the first time in, like, eight months a few days ago, right? And we kind of forgot what it's like to see things fall out of the sky. But imagine if manna, bread, just began falling from heaven for you to eat. Like, that would be how God provided for them in the wilderness. That's what happened to the Israelites when they were there in the wilderness after they had left Egypt. Now, they even drink water out of a rock, miraculously. So they see all of these powerful experiences, and they still turn their back on God. They, they complain the whole way through. And while Moses is up on this mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the Ten Commandments, the first of which is... 
you shall have no other gods before me, what are the people doing? They're down in the valley, and they're worshiping a golden calf. They create this golden calf. They worship it. So they're violating the first command, but they're also violating the second command. Because the second command was, you shall not make any graven image of any created thing. So even if the graven image was meant to point to the real God, the true God, God says, don't even do that because we have this uh, desire in our hearts at times to make God more tangible or more accessible in our minds. And so the nation struggled to like, well, how can we really, you know, worship this God we can't really see? And so they would be tempted to make things that were created things, and they might justify it in their heart and say, well, you know, God, um, God understands. Like, this is a created thing that he made. We're going to worship this image because it points us to God. And so the Israelites, when they made this golden calf, it wasn't as if they just suddenly believed that, okay, forget this God. We're going to worship a different one. That's not how it went down. They were just trying to make God be more tangible to them at a time when it felt like he wasn't present. That's what they were doing. And God still says in the second commandment is, don't make even a graven image of a man or a beast that's representing even the true God. Because God doesn't want them thinking that he's somehow limited by some image that they're going to conjure up. And so sometimes idolatry is to worship the wrong God, and sometimes it's to worship the real God in the wrong way. God gets to decide how people worship him, and they were committing idolatry when they made this golden calf. And that's what they're doing here. So this reminds me of a statement I heard someone say. It's this, powerful experiences do not guarantee spiritual success. So the Israelites are walking through the wilderness. They see all these amazing signs from God. They see a tangible uh, symbol of God with the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And they walk through all these things. They see all these, amazing, these things with their eyes. They experience it firsthand, and, um, and yet they fall flat on their face, spiritually speaking. And I know that we think sometimes that if I could just experience God in, in a powerful way, in a tangible way, if God would just show up in my life and do a miracle with um, disease in this person's life and heal that person, or if he would provide in some miraculous way, well, then I would just feel so much closer to him. I would worship him. I wouldn't struggle as much with sin. But listen, that's not true. The story of Israel shows us that, that mankind, all of us, we've got a heart problem. It's not just an information problem. It's not just that we lack the information about God and, and understanding who he is. They saw everything about God, but they still turned their back on God. You know, people that, um, there are people I come across in ministry sometimes, and they're, they're always chasing after these powerful experiences, what, what you might call the, the, the mission trip high or the camp high. And, um, and what I've noticed sometimes is people that I know that have been like that in the past, if you just say, hey, um, what scriptures are you reading right now? Or what's God showing you in your prayer life? Or... When you ask questions about, like, just basic spiritual things, they might be like, well, I don't really, I, I, I don't really do that. I'm more, like, into, I love, I love just kind of the experience. They might not say it with their mouth or say it out loud, but the implication is they're always chasing after these experiences, thinking the experience is going to get them through. And the person that does that, if they talk more about 
they talk more about those experiences than, than they talk about, you know, sin, repentance, the Bible, Jesus. Then I start to get worried. Even I can do this. I, I know we can all struggle with this, that we chase after experience, thinking experience is going to get us through, and that never seems to guarantee spiritual success in our lives because we still commit idolatry. Look at the next verse. It's in verse 6. It says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So Paul says, these things took place as an example for you, the Corinthians, so that you would not commit the same sins. And he first recounts what happened at Mount Sinai. They build this idol, they worship it, they throw this big party where they ate and drank, and they, what they do, they ate and drank, this is idol food now, right? At their party, it's idol food there in the desert at Mount Sinai. And as a result, God strikes down 3,000 of them right there on the spot. And then later, verse 8, refers to a different situation at a future time later in their desert journey when they committed sexual immorality with these Moabite women and God strikes down 23,000 of them. You know, people always take issue with God telling the Israelites to take out certain people groups when they were entering Canaan. But what about all the times where God struck down Israelites directly or he even used other nations to do that? That God is equal opportunity, and he does that here with the nation, and, and Paul's recounting those things and how God responded to their idolatry. So Corinthian idolatry was similar to Israelite idolatry. idolatry. Um, we've talked about eating food sacrificed to idols. So in Corinth, the, the temple was like this central communal gathering place, and there was, this, there was an open gathering place. There was tables to eat at. It would function like a modern-day restaurant might today. And it would be common to attend a sacrificial ceremony. So it'd be common for a Christian to get invited to a sacrificial ceremony at the temple and then to have a meal afterwards. And it was just sort of common practice in that day and age. And many Christians thought they could do this because idols don't have any substance. They're not real. They're not really pointing to a real God, so what's the big deal? So we said two weeks ago, though, these idols may not point to a real, a real God, but idolatry is a real thing because as Paul says later in chapter 10, Paul says what lies behind idolatry is the demonic realm. And he says that all worship is demonic. Paul says this later in chapter 10. And that is very real. So you can't just say, like, it's not a big deal. These idols aren't pointing to a real God. Well, it's like well, there's real demonic activity behind those idols, and that's very real. So look at the next few verses in verses 11 to 12, and this is how we can often experience idolatry. It says, now these things happened to them as an example, meaning the Israelites, but they were written down for our instruction, so the Corinthians and for us, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So verse 12 is this warning to anyone who thinks they're above idolatry. 
It says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So again, this is not about just bowing down to a statue, but this happens on the level of our desires, on the level of our appetites. And whenever you and I turn good things into a God, we aren't able to enjoy the thing, the good gift from God. We can't enjoy it for the thing that it is when we turn those things into God. So for many of us, we don't say, we don't say things like, you know, yeah, I want, I'm tired of Jesus. I want this idol now. We don't do it that way. It's more subtle than that. We usually say we want Christ, but I also want this, fill in the blank. So here's a question for you to think about. What, what do you daydream about? What, what fills your mind in the day in and day out? What do you daydream about? Do we often say, we often say things like, you know, if I only had this, fill in the blank, or if I, if I were only like this, fill in the blank. What are those things for you that you tend to just ruminate on in your mind and, and dream about in your day-to-day thinking? J.D. Greer says it like this, idolatry is not so much about what you bow your knees to, it's what you lean your soul on. So it's subtle for us. What are you leaning your soul on? What do you, what, what do you lean your soul upon for, for fulfillment or comfort or security or control? This next quote is a long quote. It's by a guy named David Foster Wallace, who is, uh, was not a believer, but he was, uh, did this famous speech. I think it was, a, a, I forget where the college was. It was a graduation speech at a secular institution. He is not a Christian, and yet he says, has this kind of insight into what our hearts are like. So listen to these words by this unbeliever. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and material possessions, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty or, or sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths, deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to feel, to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. So this guy he wasn't even a Christ follower, but he understood that everyone worships. And the sad thing is, is shortly after giving this speech, he committed suicide because he realized, I think, that everything in life is just a dead end. Like maybe he had tried everything. He probably had, but he realized that, you know, that everything is a, everything is a dead end. Everything doesn't bring ultimate fulfillment. And an unbeliever recognized this, that everyone worships. And for him, he realized, you know what, it's not even, if there's no creator, God, and these things don't really fulfill, then what's the point of even living? And so he took his life, sadly. So how do you and I I escape idolatry? Well, verse 13 shed some light on this. Verse 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, 
he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So before we come to Christ, like all we know to do is sin. We're enslaved to it. We live under sin's rule and sin's reign. But whenever you and I surrender to Christ, we no longer live under sin's power and no longer has the, the right to reign over us. Now, do we struggle? Of course we do. But each time we are tempted, God has given us a way out through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like we don't have to obey sin like we once did. So not only do we have the Holy Spirit's power in the present, but it was the death and resurrection of Jesus that won us the freedom to escape idolatry. Stephen Um says it like this, Jesus is the only one in history for whom no escape was provided. He had nothing for which he needed to repent, no sin of which he was guilty, and yet he suffered the consequences of our, of our sin. He chose not to escape in order that we might escape by looking to him. Jesus is our escape from idolatry. So Jesus comes, and he, he's tempted just like we are. I'm always amazed at that idea that, that Jesus walked on this earth for 33 years, that he was tempted just like you and me. But he doesn't fall to temptation like you and I tend to do. So he, he doesn't escape. Then he puts himself under the, the, the curse of all that life brings and death on a cross and then rises from the dead on the third day. And he, he took the judgment upon himself that you and I deserve. So he doesn't, he doesn't allow himself to escape the judgment that we deserve so that we would look to him as our escape from sin. Now, if you're someone who always feels insecure in your faith, asking questions like, how do I know I'm really saved? You can take comfort in this, find comfort in the gospel, that we can place our faith and trust in the faithfulness of Christ, not our own faithfulness. That's not what saves you. It's his faithfulness is what, is what brings about salvation and makes the gospel complete. If you go back to verse 4, it talks about Jesus being this rock that the Israelites had with them in the desert. And it says that water came from the rock. And Paul just says, this is Jesus. Jesus is the one that provided for them in the wilderness. And I love this image of the rock. Because a rock, you think of a rock, it's just, it's a, it's a, a rock is sturdy, a rock is solid, a rock is strong. But from that rock, that source, comes water for the Israelites. So from that 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 strong and sturdy rock, they also get, you know, sustenance and nourishment when they're in this dry and weary land. You know, Jesus has a way of doing that if you allow him to. You build your life upon him. He is solid and sturdy, but he also gives us nourishment, and there's this life-giving quality to having a relationship with him. You know, Paul Tripp says it like this. If you worship your way into sin, you're going to have to worship your way out. So if worship is what gets us into sin and into idolatry, you can't just say, like, okay, I'm just going to stop doing that. Well, you've got to worship your way out of that. You've got to turn your, your heart and, and, and turn your life back towards Jesus and, and find him as the ultimate being for us to worship. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So even though 
even though Jesus gives us this escape route from idolatry, you still need to take it. You still need to follow that route that he gives you to, to, to flee idolatry. There is a part for us to play. Like, we don't, we don't just stay and try to fight against sin. He says you flee. You know, uh, several years ago, I had a friend who uh, was just confessing to me some things that they were struggling with and, uh, and just some, some hard sin struggles. And as he shared those things with me, he had, he had some things in place. Like he had certain, you know, blocks on his phone. He had certain friends holding him accountable. He had, was living with some other believers that were holding him accountable as well in his life. And he, I was glad that he was sharing his temptations and, and getting it out and letting people know about it so they could be praying for him and asking him those questions. And that was all well and good. But a few months into our conversations, he began to concern me because he said things like, you know, I think I'm going to move out and get my own apartment and live by myself. And I really don't need these things on my phone because, I mean, it's, he goes, the way I see it is if I'm really going to grow and be strong spiritually, then I need to be able to do the fight. I need to be able to have the temptation staring me in the face. And then if I stand against the temptation, that means I'm stronger and I'm growing. And I was like, I don't think your logic is really biblical, right? And uh, I'd point to passages like it says, the note says, flee. You flee idolatry. And sadly, he chose the, the way I just described. And as far as I know now, is living and walking in, in sin. And listen, none of us are strong enough to stand up to that kind of temptation. You don't stay and fight. You flee temptation. You flee idolatry. That's what Paul says to the the Corinthians here. I'm going to summarize for you uh, just as 15, verses 15 to 30, where basically Paul draws this parallel with communion. And he says, if you take the bread and the wine, which is symbolizing the, the life and death of Jesus, he says you are participating in Jesus' worship. But in the same way, if you participate in an idol meal at the temple, you are participating in something demonic. So how can a Christian have a Jesus meal, then right after have a demon meal? Which sounds like, you know, a big contrast. But listen, we can struggle in similar ways of trying to mix in things of the world with our Jesus stuff, right? And, and trying to have both the best of both worlds. So Paul doesn't mince words. And, uh, and in verse 31 to 32, skip to the end of the chapter, he says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So Paul brings the argument full circle, and he says that we should not try to offend people just to do it, right? He says the gospel the gospel's offensive enough, and so we, we don't have to add to that offense. And uh, I think you and I, we live in a world where, where people are consumed with their rights, you know, Christians included. And Paul says be willing to forgo your rights for the sake of loving other people, whether it's in the body or outside the body of Christ. And when he says, I try to please everyone and everything I do, he's not talking about going against God's word to please other people. There are people that do that for sure. He's referring, he's referring to issues of conscience, these gray areas we talked about a couple weeks ago. And he's saying that if, if limiting our freedom will help someone else come to Christ, then we should choose love over exercising our freedoms. So we're going to um, have you guys go to breakouts and... Uh, if you guys don't know where to go, come.